All right. Not the most amount of technical challenges, no. but the, it's up. It's up there. All right. Dave Talbot still holds the lead for most technical challenges. Quick story. So if you look at the end where it'd be like the website, but then a bunch of letters like I, JQ, underscore this, I had to literally spell each word out. It was a 20 minute like nuclear. You, you would think like nuclear codes being launched, like check. Uh, Gil- Gilly a little while back was like, let's do a squash podcast together. And I was like, you have no technical ability. You have a reasonable amount of talking ability. But you have no technical ability, and then you have me, also no technical yeah. ability. So it's just we don't have a squash podcast here. <laughs> Good to know. We, Connor, we have our tees. There we go. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. Fans, we are back for another edition of The Roundup, catching up on the weekly headlines, results, and news from the professional tour. But it's the college season, and I am Connor Malley, joined by Bill Buckingham. Bill, great to see you, as always. The stash is it's coming in well. Not bad. November or November, no shave November. Um, doing it in honor of a friend of mine who passed uh, a few years back and uh, made a donation in his name. So I'm going to keep this going until November 30th, in which um, I will shave it off, much to my wife's glee, nice. because she absolutely hates it. <laughs> well, what we got going on today, Bill? Connor, uh, we have a very special guest. He has a lot of accolades, and I, I went back and did a little deep dive into his career. Former junior national champion, obviously head coach of one of the most the up-and-coming teams on in the CSA, both men and women. But I would say probably his biggest accolade, he is the 2007 <laughs> U.S. Squash Intern of the Year. Please welcome to the show the Tufts men's and women's head coach, Joe Rayhoud. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. Uh, yeah, that was a very special summer for me, and I really fought hard for that award. So it's just such an honor. Thanks, thanks for thinking of me. It's really no, wonderful. No, it's my pleasure. Not only did you win the award, Joe, since you were the first winner of the award, the award was actually named after you, which typically happens. What's the word? Post host posthumously. Yeah. So usually it's posthumously you get named those awards. You were named that word as a vibrant young man, basically. This is really solid. I took that I, award really seriously, and I'm so proud of it. And I'm always curious about who's interning there these days. Like, who's getting that award? <laughs> yeah, it, it was against all odds. And by the way, for the record, there wasn't just one intern that year. This was a hard fought. Yeah. I believe, wasn't that the year of five? We had five Something interns? Something like that, yeah. Five interns and two employees. Connor and I were the only employees at U.S. Squash at the time, along with our CEO, Kevin. And yep. Connor. We had just started. We had just started. Yeah. We were sitting on boxes in a little office in New York, and there walked in five bright, shiny young interns, all from, I would say, various walks of life, but they weren't from various walks of life. They were from, <laughs> very, they were from all from very upscale, posh settings yeah. of Westchester County and the Upper West Side. And Bill, don't forget. Okay, don't forget the west side of Greenwich. Okay, well, like true, true. I think we might have had someone from Byram actually, which oof, I know the, the early days of the SEA. So yeah, so they all walked in, and I remember Kevin mess- messaging us through whatever was our internal message apparatus at the time. I don't think Slack was invented yet, so I don't know what it was. We were started. using GChat. He said, "Hey guys, you need to keep the interns busy." <laughs> <laughs> Connor and I had no idea what we were doing. 
not to mention yeah. how to keep five interns who are all way smarter than us busy, <laughs> to, to be honest with you. So, Do you know what I did that well, summer? Do you remember about this? Do you remember um, Joey, I, I think, here's my guess. You sent, so I'm going to guess this. I, I'm going to be wrong, but I'm going to guess this. And, and shout out to Scott Layton, Tufts alumni, by the way, who, who when I told him that uh, we, we, we were going to have you on the show, said, He'll, Joe will probably never forget the summer in which he sent letters to lapsed U.S. squash members. Is that true or false? That's pretty true. But a lot of the summer was doing this court survey and calling Nebraska and being like, how many courts are you still using? They're like, oh, we got rid of them. We put in a Peloton and we have yoga studios in the court in the courts. It's like, all right, great. And that was the most it, of the summer. And then there was a lot of like club locker was just starting. And it was like, oh, this is going to be a new cool thing. Everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember that that basically went through the entire database of every facility in the United States and called them. Yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. It was Keep awesome. busy. Call every squash court in the United States. You know what? It was Connor, really valuable. I think yeah. it's a, a good show. It would be a good show up for us. I'm not sure anybody would listen to it. We should do a where are they now of the five interns from that first year and see. Obviously, Joey's the most successful because it, we, we know that, but I'm, I'm sure there must be a doctor. I'm pretty sure. Remember Sarah, the, the woman who played at Yale? I think she's a doctor or some kind of like nuclear physicist or something like that. Ethan Buxbaum was there with me. We became really good friends when I was there. I, I'm not sure what he's up to now. He was like crazy impressive, super smart, good squash player. And wore a pop he, collar every day. Wore a Izod shirt uh, or a Lacoste shirt every day with a pop collar, just like a good Williams student should, for sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, and he wrote a great article. Uh, he wrote a like a... Uh, a manifesto. No, it was an article about um, dissecting why the boom and bust of a racquetball happened and where squash is it by comparison. <laughs> I know. I remember he was so proud of it, and I just remember seeing it in Kevin's trash can next to his desk right after. That is not accurate. That is not accurate. Shout, right. shout, shout out, Ethan. I, I, a quick story about you. I know we're going to go long on this, only because we don't talk to Joey as often as we'd like. But a, a quick story about Ethan. Ethan went to Williams. I had never been to Williams for, for obvious reasons. And Ethan used to dress very nicely. He used to walk into the office every day in a pop-collared shirt with pressed khaki pants. And I was like, wow, that's really impressive. And a young intern doing that. I went to Williams that uh, fall, I believe, Connor, for a silver tournament, possibly the silver championships. I went with you and we spring spring. Was it spring? We pulled into Williams and I realized I saw 77 Ethan Bucks bombs. In the first, <laughs> everybody dresses like that at Williams. Like everybody, it was incredible. Everybody there was like, it, it was like a movie. There were so many people walking around with purple shirts with pop collars and khaki pants. It just was mind blowing to me. That's what I remember. So Ethan, if you listen to this, hello, I hope you're doing well. <laughs> By the way, I just have to point out how Bill is always, guys, we got to keep, we got to start now. We got to do this. Let's keep it tight to 45. And then you start telling random stories of interns. This is a podcast of one sometimes. Go ahead, Bill. So what we're going to do quickly, so we're going to get into the CSA because CSA season is upon us and we'll, we're going to get into a tough squash and have Joey give us a little rundown. But before that, we want to do a quick PSA roundup from what's going on on the PSA tour right now. The PSA is in Singapore. There's a gold tournament going on. And just this morning, the biggest upset, probably one of the biggest upsets of the PSA tour season, my my boogeyman or boogie woman in that case in pronunciations, Siva Sangari Subramaniam, beat Norel Tayeb this morning. Yeah, big win for Siva, Cornell graduate, reaching her first ever gold quarterfinal, beating one of the hottest players on the PSA tour. Nor has won twice already this year, including winning the gold tournament in Houston. So shout out to Siva. But the other things going on in Singapore, and just for, for you social media folks, 
if you have a chance, click on Mohammed Al Shabagi's interview after he beat Ibrahim in the in the second round. Uh, a four minute interview, which you would expect a four minute interview from MES to be ranting and raving about scheduling, about all the outside boogeymen that are looking to submarine his career and any other conspiracy theories that he could think of. But instead, it was a really telling interview where he talked about how he overcame Abraham and after losing the first three times to him has now beat him three times in a row. And he also poignantly talked about uh, playing his brother, who he is going to play in the quarterfinals and how he used to be a little nervous about it. But now he's based on what a few things that Marwan has says he's now he's cherishing those moments, knowing that both of their careers are coming to an end. So Shout out to Muhammad. I'm, uh, as we know, I'm not the huge, biggest fan of his, but watch that interview. It is really good. The other <laughs> the other things from there was the press conferences with Vita, which I believe is the sponsor of the Singapore Open or the Singapore Gold event. And they did some some pre-conference. And Nelly, Nayla Gillis, if you watch that, just take a look at Nayla Gillis in those. Her abs are showing. Nayla Gillis's abs are the most impressive thing on the PSA tour right now. <laughs> I, I, I kept clicking in like what you expand the picture to get up close and not in a nasty way at all. Just holy crap. The workout regimen she must put in has to be incredible. So shout out to Rob Owen, because I'm sure he has a big part to do with that. And even if he doesn't, he'll probably take full claim. But they're in the quarters. Sabrina Sobe, still the US Hope. She's going to play Tine Gillis coming up. Looking forward to that tournament advancing. We have a Mustafa Asal, Paul Call quarterfinal matchup also. But the big thing on the PSA Tour, the biggest event on the PSA Tour this week is the Mile High Open in uh, Colorado. It's a 15K and the reason it, our friend Preston Quick is involved with it, so that's why I'm, I know a lot about this event more than I probably should. So two things, Connor, and I know one of them you'll be impressed with. Jock Swanepoel, our yeah. friend, former Trinity superstar, played in this event and won his first round match at thirty nine year at thirty nine years old, advanced to the second round. So Convin- convincingly, <laughs> convincingly, he he has convincingly got swatted down last night by the seventh seed, but he did reach the second round at age thirty nine. But more impressive than that is 17-year-old Carlos Zendejas beat Armando Oquin. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly. You know how old Armando Oquin is? No. 47. Jeez. 47 years old playing in the first round of a PSA tour, a 30-year difference, which is I, – I emailed Howard Harding this morning and asked if that's the biggest difference in age of any PSA event. And I think the only one – he didn't get back to me, but then I did a little more deep dive. And do you, do you remember Cass Sunstein, the writer for The yeah. New Yorker? His wife is the UN, was the UN ambassador. He played a PSA tour event against Lewis Walter, and he was 32 years older than Lewis Walter. That was more of a lark kind of thing than a real event because he wanted to write an article. You have to think Miguel is going to break that kind of thing. Miguel is going to play a professional event at 40 Mm -hmm. and he's going to play an 18 year old. Like it's pretty close. And so uh, like how good he looked against Yusuf Solomon at us open. And and the whole time it's just, he's got a little while left for sure. If he wants to keep playing, he's going to keep playing. And it's just, yeah, it's like the age gap is going to just be astronomical. There's a chance that there's a player who hasn't been born yet who will play Miguel Rodriguez in a PSA. There's, <laughs> a, there's a strong chance. But that, 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 that's just a quick wrap-up of the PSA. We'll follow up with this next week at the end of the Singapore Open. But we do want to welcome Joey Rejo. Joey, the, the head squash coach, as we talked about at Tufts Men's and Women's, one of the rising powers of the, P, of the uh, CSA. A few years ago, 
languishing in the shadows of Harvard and even MIT for a bit. It looked like MIT might even usurp them. And that now, Joe, you've taken that team and you guys are preseason on the men's side, ranked number 12, preseason on the women's side, ranked number 12. So just an incredible upswing. So welcome to the show. And now I'm going to stop talking because Connor is, I could look at Connor. He's looking at me, Bill, stop talking. So Connor, go ahead. I was going to ask Joey, what's it like being an overnight success? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Just you, it really does show that you've taken a program. We know where it was before and you've just taken it to the program to watch in many levels. And what, there's so many key attributes that could happen or key ingredients to contribute towards that success. What comes to mind for you of the key ingredients? It's so funny about like overnight success. It's just, it's been a, a lot of work over seven years to try and make the program feel really strong and legit. The key pieces are a bunch of different things. The obviously building the facility was massive. We finished a gorgeous eight core facility in 2020. And then every recruit who comes, they say, oh, Tufts is very invested in squash. They built a gorgeous squash facility. So that's been huge. We're trying to host some junior events this year. So we get a little bit more publicity or recognition about, oh, they have a squash facility. It's gorgeous. It's a good school in a cool area. So all those things were really important. But then honestly, I have a really good boss. The AD at Tufts is an awesome guy, John Morris, and he's been really supportive of me and the team. And so it makes me feel like we're important. We matter. We have the kind of financial support in terms of budget and salaries and stuff like that to feel like we can be successful. And then it requires getting a little lucky, occasional really good recruit. And then hopefully I'm adding something by bringing it energy, enthusiasm, positivity, the right coaching methods. And so all these things hopefully just start paying off. But it's, it's a long time that we've been getting after this thing and we're reaching some of our goals. Obviously, it'd be great to get into the top 10. And the goal when we started, the women were like, I think, seventh in the NESCAC and men were either ninth or 10th. And now the women have been second two years in a row behind Trinity College, which is a little insurmountable. Who knows? Maybe one day we'd be Trinity College. And the men have been third the last couple of years behind Trinity and Williams. We still have to get over this William College hurdle for the men. And so hopefully this is the year when we do it. But it's hard. It's hard. It's a lot of work, but it's been fun. It's a nice challenge. And, and I definitely feel like supported and that uh, people care about what we're doing on campus, which is cool. For the type of athletes you're recruiting, what do you see is a lot of this comes down to fit. You know this very well. Parents obsess over all the scores, the rankings, the GPA, the like all that. But when you're helping a potential recruit make a decision, how do you communicate what's the right fit and feel for your program? So it's really funny. Over the last bunch of years, I have this recruiting thing where I say that the, the interview process is three parts. It's like your academics, either you have really good grades. Or, so there's nothing I can do on that one. Squash-wise, I, I love if you're fast and you can use the front of the court a little bit and you're starting to seem like you're using your brain on court, being thoughtful with some of your shot choices, using a little bit of deception, really appreciating quality of length in terms of dying in the back and lifting and these kind of, I think, more high-level ideas around squash. So that's what I'm watching. I like to think I have a keen eye for it. But then the third piece is this character piece. And a lot of times what I tell people is just like, are you fighting when you're in the constellation? What do you look like in the fifth game? You get a bad call, how do you react? And trying to bring in these culture pieces of people who I want to be around, people who I think our team wants to be around. And it's important. I think you see all these interviews about character and about integrity and, and how you hold yourself. And then everyone's happier on the team. They're happier coming to training. They train harder because they're happier. It's, it's good to have a good group. So we are looking for like, a person, man or woman, who seems like they're going to get along with everybody and they like the game. They like coming to practice. They like running around. It's a hard game. It's exhausting. It's 
frustrating. You hit a great shot. A super fast person picks it up. You have to keep playing. You have to be patient. You have to understand that there's the ball's hot, the conditions change, the court changes. And so you have to adjust all the time. But you, it's like people who like running marathons. It's, you like this painfulness of tiredness. But I like getting exhausted and running around in the fifth game when I feel like I can't go on. I like that feeling. It's like, all right, do you like it too? Maybe you're a good fit for our team. Interesting. So I wonder if your journey, Joe, and maybe you want to talk about this because you're unusual for a college squash coach. You were a highly decorated junior player. You represented the junior national team. And then you went to college. You went to Boston College and did not play squash. You put squash on the back burner. Yeah, it was a funky one. I was rolling. I was rolling. I win the under 13 nationals. I won the under 15 nationals. And then it started to be like, all right, he's going to win the under 17 nationals, the under 19 nationals. He'd go out as one of the, I think, best U.S. juniors to come out in a little while. And I think it was one of these things where I got really cocky um, and arrogant about I'm so good. And then everyone gets a lot fitter and stronger. It's very hard in the 17s and 19s. I make the quarterfinals in my down year of the 17s. And I'm like, all right, I'm definitely going to win next year. Easy. It's just, it's never going to be easy in the 17s and 19s, especially now with gold and JCT. It's just incredibly hard, but starting to appreciate being super fit, volleying the ball. How good's your deception? Like how many errors are you giving away? And so I never really dug into it. And I think I was a really hard worker in terms of I would run all day, but I wasn't that coachable in terms of listening and trying to really implement changes, doing things differently than how I do it. I would be like, I'm good. I know what I'm doing. Don't worry about it. And I wish I had taken more feedback. And so that was a big part of it. And then I think I got a little bit disenchanted with squash in that moment when I was, oh, I'm, an, I'm a good athlete. I can play other sports. And I really did enjoy squash, but I just didn't love all the kind of, I don't know, focus on country clubs and Ivy League. And I just got like, I was like, ah, I'll do other stuff with my life. And then I go to BC and I'm like, I'm never going to play again. And I really missed it. I really missed playing. And I had just been on the U.S. Junior National Team, and we did pretty well in Pakistan. And it's, just, it's a small, esoteric sport, but I happen to love it. I happen to be good at it. And so it's just like, why am I not pursuing this thing that I love just because it has some of these stigmas around it? And I think it was stupid to stop, but it was one of these things where I started to appreciate it more than ever and appreciate all the good around the game. And from that moment on, it's just, there's been a nice love for me of it. And just, I was just born with it. Like in terms of my parents both played when their first date was a squash match. And so it's, just, it's been a huge part of my life. I, I shouldn't just uh, give it away because not every part of it is the most like kind of beautiful thing in the world. It has a wonderful, um, so many wonderful aspects to it. And so when you decided you want back into squash, you choose UPenn. I called Craig Thorpe Clark, who was the coach at the time, who I really liked. And I had a great visit there. And then I was like, I'm never playing squash again. I call him. I, I was like, I want to play again. And he's like, great. You're a good player. Let's see what we can do. And then I had a really good interaction with Gilly. So I run into Gilly. He's playing in like a professional-ish event, college event in December, January. And we had grown up together a little bit. I had been looking up to him in junior squash. He was winning a ton of events. And we would gone to some like national training squads together. And here was a guy who reminded me a lot of myself in terms of energetic, talkative, played other sports, but also love, love squash. And I was just like, this is the kind of kid who I want to be playing with. I take my official visit with him. They play Trinity College. They're like, we're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. They get crushed 9-0. <laughs> but I have a great weekend with Gilly. And I love the guys on the team. Craig is somebody who really is passionate about squash, made me feel like he was going to take me under his wing and, and really give me a lot in terms of his attention and, and energy. And he did. And it, uh, so it was just like, it felt like a program where... 
they cared and there was a lot of energy around it. And so it felt like a natural fit and I was really excited about Philly. And so it was very seamless sort of transition for me in terms of, I talked to Craig, I talked to Gilly, I applied, I got it. And so it was like, for me, it was a no brainer. I wish I had done four years there. And, and after you finished at Penn, again, you took a different route. You didn't go right into coaching like a lot of players do or stayed in squash like a lot of players do. You started working at a law firm, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, I don't know. I think some people probably think it's hysterical and lovely that I have this long circular route or some people are like, oh, he's got no direction. He's lost. But It all I, makes sense in retrospect, right? <laughs> no, I just, I finished playing. I'm like, all right, I just did squash for a long time. Let me do some other things. Let me do something corporate and regular. All my friends are going into finance and law and medicine and whatever. So let me do the same thing. And so then I go there and Billy me pretty well. So do you, Connor. It's just like wearing a suit every day for me was really difficult. <laughs> very difficult. <laughs> Showing up on time every did day, you, very did, difficult. Did you ever get to carrying an umbrella? That's a question we have to ask. It never you, got there. I never made it. I never made it to that you, level. <laughs> you still never carried an umbrella. Like you're an anti-umbrella kind of guy. Yeah, I was like, I would wear my rain jacket. I was like, this is enough. I wouldn't have a briefcase. I'd have my backpack. It was like, it was never going to be a fit. So ju just for those people listening, wondering where that question comes from, hearkening back to Joe's 2007 internship, during the summer, people who maybe don't live in the Northeast don't realize how often it rains and how often it rains really hard during the hot, humid summer days in New York City. And Joe, at least I'd say once every two weeks, would show up into the office when I say dripping wet, I think I don't even think I could describe what dripping wet means. I'm talking like so, he had just got out of a so. pool because he would walk from Grand Central Station to our office on the west side in the pouring rain with no umbrella. True. Bro? <laughs> Very true. 100% and, true. And would sit there with clothes drenching wet with the, the AC that would be freezing. And I'm like, how is this kid doing this? I was both. <laughs> impressed and also scared <laughs> all the while calling nebraska to see if they have any converted racquetball courts after law you then turn to what i understand at talking to you and we share this your culinary passion yeah like i i realized that law is not for me i do my two years i take the lsat i think about going i decide not to go and i'd always loved cooking my mom was a really good cook my dad's family all kind of italian we'd sit around the table and so every time that anyone asked me what I was going to do career, I was like, oh, I'm going to own restaurants and things like that. And um, I decided to take the plunge and go to culinary school nine months. I do 600 hours of culinary time. And then I work in Italian restaurants for three years, cooking as a line cook, like, like from the bear. I got yelled at a lot and um, I learned a ton. And like, it was one of these things about becoming an adult, I think, where I was there 24 to 27, I started taking things a little bit more seriously trying to be really diligent about showing up on dime and doing a good quality of work while I was there. And it was so hard and I was making no money to like work in these restaurants. And yet it was so difficult and they'd fire you in a second. And so mm. it's just, if it wasn't really what they wanted and the standards of what they wanted was pretty clear. And so it's just what is expected and you have to just do it over and over again. It started to really instill a lot of discipline in me in a good way. And it really got me going on really good habits. That being said, I had a bunch of horrible nights in the restaurant where I was like, I can't do this anymore. It's just, I'm there till 12 o'clock at night, yelling the whole time. I'm making $10 an hour. This is insane. And I was like, maybe I should give coaching a full-time go and see how I like it if I do it professionally full-time. And in that moment, Brown assistant coach job opens up. I apply and Stuart had been there forever, Stuart Legasic. And so 
he still knew me and he still knew that I was like a good player and, and had enjoyed my time in college and, and juniors. And so gave me a chance. And so it was really, he really opened that door for me. And that was 10 years ago. Was there, was squash always in the back of your mind or when you had come to your end at the culinary experience, what could I do? It, it appeared. No, like for me, I think you know, when I talk to the kids on the team about what they want to do for career, I always say two things. I say, what are you good at? And what do you enjoy? If you're really good at something, but you hate it, that's not great. And if you really enjoy something, but you stink at it, it's, that's not great either. And so it's, you want to figure out what are you good at and what do you enjoy? And so I was always really good at squash at a, from a very young age. It came naturally to me. I liked it. And as I grew up, I liked it more and more. And so I was, maybe I should think about doing this full time. It's always been in the back burner. I would always play. My game was still pretty fresh. I was certainly wasn't like fit when I was coming off of coaching. But I was still playing. I, rare that I would go more than two weeks without playing. And so on my two days off, I would go hit the ball. Solo for me has always been such a peaceful sort of thing, hitting the ball by myself for 30 minutes or an hour and playing. And so it was never far from my mind about con considering doing this. And again, because it had been such a, a funky road about giving up squash and then bringing it back, it's like I never wanted it to be gone from my life again. And while I was cooking, it was gone in a way, but it wasn't really gone. My skills were still there and I was still playing reasonably regularly. It was it was a reasonably natural transition. And, and I think I realized that I couldn't be in restaurants full time for the rest of my life. How genuine is the bear, the show The Bear to real restaurant life? I think it's pretty accurate. I, I don't want to like name names, whatever. But like when I was at Lincoln Restaurante, I got, I don't want to say abused, but I got screamed at a lot. And it was just like, and so I like those people and I had a good experience, but uh, you would have liked it, Bill. There was a kid there who was like, Joe, every day you get yelled at so much and you just come back the next day. I really respect you for that. Like, <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> and he like, didn't like me at first. Then he liked that I was getting abused and yelled at. And I would just, I had thick skin from my brother. He would beat me relentlessly my whole life in every sport we played. And my dad was tough on us. And so I had really thick skin, and w which was good in restaurants. The bear is very similar. It's just everyone expects a degree of quality and everyone's stressed because it's like everyone's sitting at their table. And if they wait more than 15 minutes for their Cote de Bouffe, like they're very fussy. And so it's just. <laughs> so you weren't working at like a diner. You were working at high end places. Both the places had a Michelin star. So I was at Lupa Osteria Romana for a year and a half. I was at Lincoln Restaurante for about a year and a half. And Lupa is like casual Osteria, Roman pastas, cacio pepe, bucatini amatriciana. And then Lincoln would focus on different regions of Italy and did a ton of fresh pasta, but was very fancy, was run by a very famous chef, Jonathan Beno, who opened Per Se and has had one of the, I think, great kind of culinary careers. He was a very tough boss, very tough boss. And but yeah, like massive accolades as a chef and has opened restaurants and done a million things in, in his life. And so it was an interesting experience. Very hard. Season five what? of the bear. Carmi becomes a squash coach at a small liberal arts school. What do you think? Yeah, I think it could be. It's believable. It's, 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 I think he seems like he's athletic. He could probably figure it out. What, if anything, from your years working in the kitchen, do you are you now using in your coaching? I talk about it all the time with the team. The women's team actually makes fun of me that I always use all these cooking references. But I always talk about that in order to create a dish, that there's a lot of aspects to it, right? Just a good squash match. I used to think in squash when I was probably 16, 17, that a lot of the, the strategy was hit the ball hard and hit it low to the tip. And so if you hit the ball low and hard to the, close to the tip, you're going to win the match for sure. And so now I realize there's a lot more to it. In my cooking, the thing with that was if I just salt the thing properly, the whole thing's going to go well. It's just about the amount of salt. And it's, it's not. It's about 
the ingredient. It's about texture. It's about how you cooked it. It's about color. It's about all this stuff. And these days, like my big focus with the team this semester has just been like above the cut line. And it's just, I never lobbed the ball when I was young. I just like volley, pace, pressure, everything low, attack. And it just, Ali Farag floated around and a number of other players like, used the space well. And I've been uh, working summer sometimes with Shahir Razik and, and Greg Gautier. But it's just like both of them, it's lift the ball, use the space, change the pace, change the angle. I used to not want to win with both because I didn't think it was a cool enough shot. I would <laughs> only want to win with volley drop or like cross court nick. Those were the only shots that I thought were special enough to win with. And so it's just, no, appreciate weighted two wall boast that ties into the nick. Appreciate lift that, that, that you get a boast off of. Appreciate hold and then go straight. It's just, I try to be more thoughtful about how I teach it, that there's a lot of aspects to squash other than hitting the ball hard and running fast. Yeah, well, I now appreciate, Joe, that you sat there in that summer in 2007 and listened to me drone on about lowbrow food like hamburgers and things like that. Like you, had, In your mind, you were like, this old man has no idea what food is. No, it's like, I, I, I so appreciate people who are passionate about it. And you were just like, I went to this burger place. It wasn't right. Patty was too big. Patty was too small. Over-salted, under-seasoned, under-char-grilled. They put it in the broiler. They did it on the pan. They did it in the oven. It's just like you were thoughtful the, about food. I like anyone who's thoughtful about food. The <laughs> amount of times I heard bun to burger ratio, it was just like, <laughs> like destination burger, local. Yeah, there's a whole... There, yeah, love it, love it. Absolutely. So let's get into your team a little bit, Joe. Your women's team first. First of all, I did some research on your women's team last night and, and actually the other day also. I love your website. You know why I love your website, Joe? Because oh, I am, and as your one of your best friends, Gilly, will tell you, although I am a, a MC and a host, my, my name pronunciation is not the best. Yeah. I'm, on the rosters on Joe's team's page, there is a little thing where you could click and it phonetically pronounces each one of the players' names. That's awesome. It's a really cool thing. We got an amazing media person at Tufts last year. And we've had amazing media people in the past, but this guy's awesome. Jamie Chagnon, he's our new media person. And I think it was his kind of idea to put it on the page. And it's been really cool. I love hearing the names. I think it's so nice. I think it's such a beautiful way to connect with the players. Yeah, I think it's been a great addition. Quick note on here for anyone that's attended college matches, they'll definitely know this. Uh, but if you haven't, what happens is in the introductions where the two matches are playing each other, typically the captains will do roll call. <laughs> and it is just butcher city of people you compete with every day, uh, practice day in, day out, and they can't say their name or where they're from. It is... <laughs> We, we think about, I definitely think about doing practice of introductions. It's just, this is meant to run smooth, guys. You're just going to say a number and a name. That's your whole role here. It's just, we, let's just make sure we can hit this on the head. <laughs> well, I was looking at the top of your lineup, and your top of your lineup from last year is pretty much intact. And they had a 23-6 and dual match record in the NESCAC. That has to give you so much confidence on your team coming into this year. Yeah, like I think the women's team brings back everybody but one player. We brought in a pretty strong recruiting class. And so I feel super confident about women who know what they're doing. They're going to go in and compete. And they were very successful last year. So it's just like a lot of experience, a lot of wins that should be driving confidence. And then I think they should be going in walking tall into the season, like big sort of bullseye on the back like we keep on the women's side we keep beating Williams and Amherst I'm sure they're not happy about it and so it's just it's a big deal for us and so it's just like you have to keep after it and I think the women's team 
has enough talent for it, but you got to keep putting in the work. And I think, I hope we have, and I think we have, and, but it's a talented group and nice to be bringing back people who know what they're doing. Yeah. And so what's the goal? What's the goal for this year? So last year, obviously finished, finished strong. And this year you guys are preseason ranked number 12, the 12 teams that get into the national championship there this year, the biggest change in college squash, you guys are preseason ranked to get into the fine, to, into the, the how cup. Yeah, so like the goal is to make that tournament, of course, and to, to make the national championships. I think it's an interesting spot where we agreed about 12 teams. Okay, fine. This is where it is. The goal for the women's team recently has been to get an Ivy League win. And so we've been close with Dartmouth. Maybe this is a year where we can get over that hurdle. We still have to hold back all these very strong NESCAC teams, Middlebury, Amherst, Williams, and, and they're, again, they're going to fight about it. It's always tough. This William Smith team is pretty solid that we play that we play this weekend. And so uh, I'm excited. If we can finish top 10, it'll be a huge accomplishment. But if we just make the national championship 12 and see how we do when we get there, I'll feel really proud of our women. Who do you think on the men's side, just a random question I'm throwing out there for no reason at all on the men's side, who do you think is going to win the national championship this year? I think Penn has a chance. They, they got a decent team over there. And it's, I think... Salman Khalil bringing in a world junior semifinalist is really helpful, and, and they already have a great team of experienced guys. Obviously, I went there, so it's, I'm hoping it's, it's their year. You never know. It's unbelievable how many times you can get jinxed in, in one year. It's unbelievable how many times you can get jinxed in one year. I tell them all the time, guys, that you can't be saying that on, you know, and, and I, I tell them every day, you can't be picking us. What's going on here? I don't want to be a jinx like I've been accused of. Joey rightly predicted that UPenn is going to be the men's, the, the Potter Cup champion. I think he's doing it, Bill. He, he listens to the pod. He wanted to be the, 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 another person to, to set the jinx on his own alma mater. It's unbelievable. My best friend in the world throwing the jinx on us. So, so Joe, before we get to Gilly has a few questions for you, I'm sure. Let's talk about your men's team. 12th, again, preseason, ranked number 12. The top of your lineup also back also had a very strong uh, season last year. Is Harry Charlton still playing number one for you? He is still playing number one, you know. Um, is he the only number one player? Uh, well, actually, no. We're looking at Gilly Lane right here, who also has Nick Spaziri, who at times plays number one for Penn. Are they the only two male number one players for top 12 ranked teams in the country? Um, I guess I'm thinking so, right? Is there anyone else who's an American player who plays at the top of their lineup for a top 12 team? I think that's the only one. Yeah. yeah, probably not. Yeah. Bill is very excited about his research. Thank you. I, I, <laughs> he's just looking for, I don't care, just the fact that it's correct. I don't care what you answer. Yes. I'm just going to go through the stuff that I looked up. And if you guys could just nod your head accordingly, that would be the best. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a stud. He's a stud. And you couldn't get a better guy, like the most humble person alive. I don't think you want people who play number one who actually don't want to play number one, in my opinion. It's like they're good enough to do it, but it's just Gilly wanted to play number one. There was a confidence around it, which is fine. But I, yeah, I and you're like, like wait, like, did you just say that's what you don't want? <laughs> yeah, more or less. There was a cockiness to him playing number one that you probably don't love. But Harry does it because he's the best player on the team. So it's just, I think he's wildly talented with the racket. And, and I think he's a good role model. He's a great leader. He's a hard, one of the hardest workers at practice. He sets a good example, never takes it for granted that he's like, oh, I could do less with my skills and not work that hard. It's just, no, he still works really hard. So amazing leader. And we got a, we have a great group around him. So it's just, it doesn't take one person. And I feel confident because we have a great group. We brought in a really strong recruiting class, which has been a big deal. But 
if we could finish 12 for the men, it'd be a huge accomplishment. We've gone up in ranking every year that I've been here from 27 to 16 and to 12 would be a huge bump, but it's a lot of work ahead. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Kerwin Tay playing number two for you again this year. And then Yusef Ezo playing yeah. number three. Uh, Yusef, Yusef intrigues me. I did a lot of research. I was probably the only person who ever researched Yusef Ezo as closely as he's been researched. So I hope his social media <laughs> bitey senses weren't tingling. His win against Tate Harms last year at Harvard was probably one of the the biggest wins of for a Tufts player ever in the CSA. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it was one of Gilly's actually favorite wins of the year for anybody because he always likes seeing Harvard lose. You know. Oh. And so, <laughs> anyway, so... It was ridiculous. Yeah, that was a, a crazy win. He's a wildly talented. Actually, his story is almost similar to mine in terms of he went to Penn State. People missed on him as a recruit because of COVID and calls me and he's like, I'd like to transfer. I was like, I have no idea who you are. Like, I have my recruiting <laughs> class. I'm not interested. He's like, I'm just going to be honest. I'm just going to be yeah, honest here. I have no <laughs> idea who you are. I've never seen you play. I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> we get him in transfer. And he's just a, an absolute stud. And so has a great sophomore year and now as a junior and, and has been looking good and super talented. And I think I think grew up playing sort of same club or around Ali Farag and is like amazing wrist, beautiful movement. And again, another good piece of the puzzle for us and just a super nice kid, really hardworking. And so we're lucky to have him. So Joe, when you're hoisting the Potter Cup trophy in a couple of years and they ask you, and Yousef's your star player, and they ask you about how he came to Tufts, I would not go with, he called me and I told him, I have no interest in you. <laughs> Say, I worked really hard. I pounded, the, I went over to Happy Valley. I saw he was, he was unhappy in Happy Valley and brought him over to Tufts. So let's, yeah. just go, let's just go with that. But, you know, Alex Grayson, who, who works with me at Tufts, he always makes fun of me. He's like, you do all this work. You fly to, you know, Thailand to recruit. And then you miss out on Yusuf Ezo. You get lucky <laughs> that he happens to apply. You had nothing to do with it. And there's your recruiting. That was Joe Rejo, wizard recruit. <laughs> Such a good recruiter. Joe, you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to tell those stories. Those are the stories that you own and say, yeah, I'm the best recruiter. The only reason I like that result is because of the Tufts Harvard results, because Tate beat us in the decider for what was the Ivy League championship. That was actually the only reason. It's not because I like seeing Harvard lose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Gilly, do you like seeing Harvard lose? No, I actually respect them a ton. So, <laughs> um, I think they do a really good job. Their guys are always ready. That was a huge win, though, for Yusuf. And I, to go back to Harry, we played Tufts, what was it, Joe, two years ago uh, in Philly. Harry was phenomenal at one. He's incredibly talented and... Um, in a way, is kind of like Joe's, like our, his version of Andrew Douglas, in a way, uh, when a really top American chose to come to play for Joe, maybe when he wanted to build up the team, same way Andrew chose Penn. And so it was really exciting when I remember when Joe got, when got Harry, and it was a really, really big deal, and he really owned that position for the program. And the thing that's been really cool that Joe's created there is that he had this vision for the program Obviously, I'm, I'm very biased because how close we are, but we talk every day. He got someone like Harry to buy into his program and, and make that choice and say, you know what? Actually, I go the opposite way. He wanted to be the guy. He, Whether he knew it or not, he was making that decision to be the guy and carry the flag for Tufts. And he's done an unbelievable job representing Tufts at number one and plays the right way. And just the way just the way he goes about his business is fantastic. He was It was an absolute joy to watch him play. And he's also just a great person as well.
Gilly, talk about when Joey transferred over to UPenn. You were the senior captain. Uh, he said he, you hosted him for his recruiting visit. If there may be one PG story you could tell off the court of that recruiting visit, but then talk about your time with Joey during that. So Joe and I knew each other from way back in the day. So we're two years in age difference or two years in school. We grew up playing juniors together. I still am angry at him for winning the MVP of the Princeton squash camp over me when he was 12 and I was 14. I, I still still hold that against him or he probably holds it against me. But when he reached out to talk about transferring, it was actually at in New York. We were at a doubles tournament, a collegiate doubles tournament. And he said, I really think about transferring. I said, oh, that'd be great. We need to get you down. And I knew, obviously, great person, a great athlete, just would be perfect for the team. We actually ended up playing probably can tell the story better than this because we played Trinity that weekend. So we could, didn't really have a, it wasn't a crazy night out or anything. And Joe's a pretty low key guy. So it was like more like PlayStation and, and just chilling. But we did play a pickup basketball game that got very heated with myself, my roommates. And it was, this is mid season, by the way, we're playing pickup basketball. Hmm. And I, I wouldn't call myself the, a good basketball player by any stretch of the imagination, but I had the best move of my entire life in that game, which in Joe's phone now, my nickname is Step Back because I basically crossed somebody over, looked at him like I literally just ended his career, then sank a three, then looked back at him again. And Joe said it was like, honestly, the, the rudest thing anyone's ever done in his life. I don't think that's the reason why it came to Penn, but it, it's Joe, if anyone doesn't know, doesn't really actually keep anyone's actual name in his phone. So only nicknames come up when people call him. <laughs> Joe, Joe, I texted you for the first time ever just three days ago to set this up. What is my nickname in your phone right now? You're in as Mr. Cheeseburger. <laughs> Mr. Cheeseburger. <laughs> oh, man, that's hilarious. That's yes. hilarious. <laughs> it's so much clearer that way. It's 100%. Thing. What's Connor? Well, I'm probably not in there. <laughs> Connor, not in you. If you want to get in, I'd love to take your number. Connor. All right, this is, I definitely need to take you up on that. Yeah. So, Joe, coming up this weekend, you, the NESCAC season finally starts. There's been a couple of scheduling snafus, or some NESCAC teams have tried to start their season a bit early, which and then got shut down by Commissioner Commissioner NESCAC. But you jumped right into the fire this weekend. Obviously, the top team in the NESCAC, Trinity College, on Sunday. What are your thoughts going into that match? Obviously, a huge mountain to climb playing Trinity, but also you guys are now, you, to say it, you guys probably have your, the best team you've had in your tenure at, at Tufts. So what are you looking forward to on Sunday? When you play somebody like Trinity, and we play them almost every single year, and you play somebody like Harvard, for me, the, the, uh, the goal is the same and the message is the same. It's just compete. Right now, we're 0-0, zero and zero, right? Uh, they're 0-0, zero and zero, or maybe they're going to be 1-0 by then. Hopefully, we'll be 1-0 by then. But it's just, they have to prove it to you every single time. That's how sports goes. And so it's just like, if you want somebody's respect, go on court and earn their respect by making it difficult. Get a ton of balls back. Hit some nice shots. Push them. It's, it's always like, all right, you're really good. Go get a game off this guy or this woman. And it's just, or go get two games. Win the match. So I'd love to be Trinity College. If you're so capable of it and you think you're so good, great. They're good for a reason. It's really tough. But I just like having like fighter mentality. It's just, I am not going to just get walked on because you're Trinity College or Harvard or whatever it is. And so it's, I'm here to show you that I'm a player. I work hard on my game. I've been after this thing for five or 10 or 20 years, whatever it is for the kids, not 20 years, but still that I, I take my squash really seriously. I'm here to compete. And so that's always the messaging. And so we walk into Hartford. And I hope we just put up a show where it's just, it's tough. And they think it's not going to be difficult. And all of a sudden they're in tough matches. That's always the goal. Our number two kid, 
last year took a game off Joe Kim Chua, which was a really big deal. And I think he was very angry about it and then tried to bagel the kid in the fourth game that he had given away a game. And Joe Kim is one of the best players to watch and just fantastic, amazing in every way. But my kid took a game, so why couldn't he take a second game or whatever it is? It's just, you want to believe it. You got to believe that you're good. Interesting to me that you're starting off your season with the number one team. You guys are, are arguably, you have you, Williams, and, and Trinity, the, the cream of the crop in the NESCAC. And your first match is against, is against Trinity as opposed to the, the building up. Is that a schedule that you set, that NESCAC set? How did that work out that you're playing Trinity, the first, basically your second match of the year? I set the schedule. Every year I set the schedule. I always like playing a super hard mask really early on. We played Penn really early in the season last year. It was our second match of the year after F&M. And it just, I like the, what's the expression? You're always good until somebody punches you in the face. It's just, you have a big ego and you're like, oh, we're so good. It's if you're really good, let's see how you do against Trinity College. And so it's, I, I like this kind of thing about playing somebody who's really good and seeing if you're ready. It's like, all right, did you do enough in September? Did you do enough in October to prove that you're ready right now as the season starts? So, Gilly, any final questions for for Coach Ray? No, I just, I think what he said, his way in which he goes about it is why they've improved every year. And I, I think players follow the attitude of their coach. And if you have someone who's motivated to really move up, he's made Tufts a, a destination and not just a, a, another choice. It's a place where people want to be and know they can go win. And it's what he just said is, I think, why he's getting the results. And I think also the attitude of we're going to go in and compete. I think he and I talk about all the time. We, we, we are both big sports people in general, and we want to go out and compete and, and not lay down for anyone. I think that was our mentality when we played together. And it was at the time, I Penn, Penn was the blue collar Ivy, right? We were We wanted to get our hands dirty and built our kind of way and passion from there. And, and I think Craig did a good job of instilling that in us, but I think also from how we grew up, we just wanted to compete. And so he's done that really well. I would just say, I would say, I would ask, I'd say in terms of your prep and in terms of the NESCAC season, I know you're always shooting to, to win the NESCAC or be in second. Tell me how the mindset has changed of your players, new facility, now expectations. How has that changed your group and how much fun has that been for you and the kids that you're bringing in? I think it's probably a double-edged sword. Like, I think you feel confident that you've gotten wins, but then there's this idea of being the number one seed in tournaments. And I've been the number one seed in tournaments, and so have you, Gil. And there's this expectation thing. So there's this expectation that we're good now and in the NESCAC and that we should win all these matches. Like, all right, that's tough. It's not that easy when you're expected to win. And we talk a lot about that I, I hate the word should. Oh, you should win. You're better than this person. You should win. There is no should in sports. It's just like you play the match and you see what happens. And so should win. It's just like you're just putting these unnecessary expectations on yourself that you're supposed to win. And then you feel the pressure of it. And the other person's playing free. And so it's just like, all right, guys, you earned this expectation. And now you have to know how to live with it. And the whole thing is just holding yourself to a standard about this is how I play squash. And I don't play up or down that much. I have a level that I play to. And I try to keep that level going. And for us, that level has risen significantly, which is cool, but it's just, it doesn't mean that you couldn't have a bad match. So it's just hold yourself to a standard, try and play that way. And hopefully we get similar results to how we've been doing recently.
So I'd be remiss, and I wouldn't be myself if I didn't bring this up. Gilly wasn't on earlier in the show, and Gilly prides himself, obviously, on his on his ability, his speaking ability for sure, but his tech, his technical ability. Joey Rejo informed us that you tried to proffer, uh, I don't know if proffer is the right word, you proposed a podcast with Joey, a squash podcast, and he turned you down, not because he, he's not a friend of yours, not because he doesn't respect your squash knowledge. He turned you down because your lack of tech ability, Gilly. Do you want to respond to yeah, that? Yeah, it's horrendous. Like tech... My tech ability is terrible. He's exactly right. But we actually wanted to start a pod. So it was during COVID. I have a buddy who's a sommelier. I'm sure you brought it up that Joe's a ridiculous chef. He's a big yep. foodie. And he's actually taught me. Joe, you can tell them I'm a pretty big foodie myself. I love my, my Instagram now is all food stuff. But I wanted to do like a pod where I was going to be the host. And Joe was going to be cooking. And then my buddy who's the sommelier was going to propose like cheap wines that you could pair with each meal. And we were going to do just a chat show almost. The first episode we did a, a, a trial, it did not go did not go great and realized that we needed an expensive setup to make it work. But it was going to be, a, we were like, it was purely out of boredom and wanted to do a pod with two good buddies. I'm obviously not as good a host as you and Connor, Bill, and don't have the setup that you guys had. So we should have hired you. And then we could have done it. We could have done it then. So what was it called? It was called three, three men. And what was it like something? I don't know. It was, it was, we didn't even, we, it didn't really even get off the ground, but it, I thought it was a great idea. <laughs> the name was still in testing. Yeah, for sure. I would have looked forward to being part of that. Joe, maybe have me on as a special guest. I could have flipped a burger or two for you. Yeah, that would have been lovely. Burger. That's what I'm going to change your name, Bill, to. That's amazing. That's Mr. That's Mr. Cheeseburger. (laughs) Exactly. Connor, any closing thoughts? No, this is awesome. And Joey, my joke about overnight success, we know how much time, work and effort that's gone in and how many of the key ingredients you pulled together to make that all happen. And you are truly legacy building. We're watching it and we're so excited with the uh, the changes to the national championship, we've talked about this a few times, that really now puts you guys in that contention to be in the top ranked. And we're all going to be looking looking forward to tracking your results, and we're rooting for you. And, and Joey, one last thing from me. When recruits walk into your center, obviously you have a brand new squash center at Tufts. The tech, speaking of tech, the tech that's in your squash center, do you just want to talk about that? Yeah, I think, I don't know. I was born in 1987, and so my, like, knowledge of computers and tech was minimal and i feel like it stayed minimal we do have a beautiful play site system so we stream every match the quality is pretty good you can watch us play all over the world on every single court we do a ton of match review it's not bad we have scoreboards at every court there's other people like greg Bourne, who i happen to be friendly with and luckily he's set us up in a good way and there i think a good part of leading is delegating and so i'm not good at tech so luckily there's other people who are good at tech who are friends of mine. So it's just kind of I like, feel like Bill was looking for a I'm shout guessing, out there. And you know what? Yeah, and you Bill was definitely and, fishing. And I love that he was fishing. You didn't give him anything. So, Joe, just one last question I have. That, who, well played, Joe. Well what, played, who, Joe. Who, who, who is that tech powered by? I guess you set it up with Club Locker. Okay, fair enough. I, I, I didn't know how influential you were. <laughs> and it's cool. I think so a lot of times the power players are behind the scenes. And clearly you're one of those power players behind the scenes. Nobody knew about how influential you were. I always thought it was Greg, but in, in actuality, it was Bill Buckingham setting up everything. No, I just wanted to use you to use the C word. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, guys, we appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. Uh, jo- Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. 
We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.